Please take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And let me say how good it has been to uh, be with you for these days. I appreciate the invitation, the hospitality, and uh, the opportunity to be back in the area. As was mentioned, I was in Kansas City for 10 years and would get out this way free- frequently. And so it's uh, been enjoyable to come back to the area. But thank you for the invitation to be here. And Mike, thank you for your hospitality and all the things that were involved with that. And I especially enjoyed my time with the men and the responsiveness. And uh, I was encouraged by so much that I heard and even in between the two sessions. So many good testimonies from some of the young men as well, some of the teenagers, as some husbands and wives talked about some uh, things that uh, they did in family worship last night that no one mentioned, that, that they didn't mention publicly during the service. And so I'm encouraged that the Lord's going to bring much lasting fruit from this, from this time together. Each of us daydreams on occasion, don't we, about different fantasies that we have. For example, uh, many men may have shared with me the, uh, the fantasy of hitting that three-ball, two-strike pitch with the bases loaded, two out in the bottom of the ninth as, uh, to help the Cardinals win the World Series over the Rangers. And I saw last night that moment I, I've always dreamed of being a part of, you know, when the Rangers won the pennant last night and they all came together on the pitcher's mound, you know, and leaping on top of each other with the abandonment of five-year-old boys, you know, as they had this lifelong dream come true and just threw themselves on top of one another and had that, that incredible experience. Maybe yours has been some uh, long, incredible touchdown to win the Super Bowl or some uh, snaking uh, Michael Jordan-type shot. Uh, Uh, to bring the NCAA trophy uh, back to this state. I almost mentioned a particular school, but doing so realized I might have been like Paul among the Pharisees and Sadducees there if I mentioned just uh, one school there. Many of us have fantasized about what we would do if some long-lost relative left us millions of dollars and we inherited that and what we might do, where we might travel, where we might live, something like that. Maybe you've daydreamed about being a courageous battlefield hero or some uh, graceful Olympic figure skater or lovely ballerina or something like that. Life as an accomplished singer or musician. Master craftsman, maybe. Perhaps just someone happily married. Maybe you've sometimes imagined what it would be like to be a, a spellbinding speaker or a Top Gun jet fighter pilot or... Someone who just lives a quiet life in a lakeside cabin or some mountain retreat place somewhere. Doubtless you've had fantasies of heaven and what it must be like to be there. Likewise, you've probably also imagined or tried to the horrors of hell. Continuing to think on the darker side, it's not uncommon to fantasize occasionally about different physical pleasures and what it would be like to have them without limitation or accountability. But of all your fantasies, which is the strongest? Which of them, if it were within your power to fulfill one of them, would you choose? Well, in his or her best moments, when you could choose any fantasy more than any other that fulfills the the depths of your heart, the Christian would choose to at last be in heaven with God, face to face, enjoying Him forever. 
Because planted within every believer by the triune God is this unquenchable desire to be with God, to be like Christ, and at last see face to face the one the angels can say, holy, 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 day and night without ceasing forever because of the beauty. One whose being is so great that just to see him, just to see him can satisfy you forever. And though the Christian daydreams about earthly things too, and yes, even sinful things, the most absorbing fantasy of the Christian is with spiritual things, with the things of God. But it is not true with others. The non-Christian can identify himself or herself as one who if could indulge any fantasy would be to indulge some sin. Their most compelling daydream is to gratify a sinful desire without restraint, without law, without accountability, and ultimately without God. And that illustrates the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian as described in Romans 8 verse 5 this way. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I want you to notice in this passage two kinds of people as we go back to verse 4 and down through verse 9. I want to emphasize two kinds of people contrasted in this passage, and I mention that because some people want to read three into this. They say you have the non-Christian and the Christian, but there are two kinds of Christians. Well, Scripture only makes plain, I believe, two kinds of people. Two broad categories, and they're both mentioned in this passage. The Christian, the non-Christian. Pick it up in verse 4, in the middle of the thought. In order that the requirement of the law, what is that? Perfection. Absolute obedience. Always keeping the law, never breaking the law. That this requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Fulfilled in us. Who's us? Us who do not walk on the one hand according to the flesh, but on the other hand according to the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh on the one hand, excuse me, verse 5, For those who are according to the flesh on the one hand set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset back on the one hand is on the flesh is death. But on the other hand, the mindset on the Spirit is life. Peace. Because, back on the other hand, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. That's not a Christian, is it? For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. That certainly is no Christian. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, on the other hand, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God fills you, controls you, and it says if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone, on the other hand, does not have, not indwelled by, just does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Do we need to, do I need to do anything with the microphone here? Okay, I don't know if something, it's a little out of adjustment. All right, thank you. So you have two kinds of people here. And everyone in the world is in one of these two, one of these two groups. So these verses teach us that what you set your mind on, verse 5, what you set your mind on indicates whether you're saved or lost, whether you're a Christian or not. 
In other words, the thoughts of your mind reveal the state of your soul. One sense we can say, if you want to know what's going on down here, look up here. The thoughts of your mind reveal the state of your soul. If your mind is set on the flesh, the sinful nature, earthly things instead of heavenly things, then the Bible says you're in spiritual death, you're not a Christian. Now both the King James and New King James versions of the Bible use a term in verse 6, I think, that is helpful. Instead of saying they set their minds on the things of the Spirit, it, the older translations say they, they are spiritually minded. And I want to use that term, spiritually minded. And it refers to a person who has the Spirit of God in their mind. That's what a spiritually minded person is. The Spirit is in their mind. Their mind is set on the things of the Spirit. Now that doesn't mean that non-Christians who sometimes think about the invisible spiritual realm, who think in terms of principles or character or intangible things, are spiritually minded. Spirituality is a hot topic today. I mean, I'm a professor of biblical spirituality, so I'm in tune to these kinds of things. And I have a survey from the front of USA Today which says where a majority of atheists consider themselves spiritual people. I mean, have you ever met anyone who said, I'm not spiritual? I mean, everybody's spiritual today, right? So when it says spiritually minded, it's not referring to a person who just is a little more introspective than someone else. It refers to a person who has the spirit of God in their mind. There are people who do and people who don't. And one of the ways you can recognize whether you are or not is your mind set. Whether your mind is set on the things of the spirit or your mind is not. Is your mind set on the things of the Holy Spirit, the things of God, or not? So, I want to use that term spiritually minded this morning and to ask you, are you spiritually minded? It's a different way of asking the question, is the Spirit of God within you? But because of its kind of fresh way of asking it, I want to use that term, are you spiritually minded? And it's critical for the following reason. If you're taking notes, this is my... First point, so to speak, only those who are spiritually minded are Christians. It's an important question, are you spiritually minded? Because only those who are spiritually minded are Christians. These verses teach that what you set your mind on indicates your spiritual condition. The thoughts of your mind reveal the state of your soul. If your mind is set on the sinful nature, on earthly things, instead of the things of God, you're in spiritual death, you're not a Christian. Now keep your place here, but see this taught in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. In both places, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he makes, uses the same kind of language there to describe someone in Philippians 3, 18 who is clearly not a Christian, based upon their mindset. Philippians 3, 18, for many Walk, says Paul, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's certainly no Christian, right? They're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. They're, what they're proud of, they ought to be ashamed about. And notice this now, these enemies of the cross, they set their minds on what? Earthly things. Same kind of terminology back in Romans 8, 4 through 9. Those who set their minds on earthly things. They are enemies of the cross. They are not Christians. They are not indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that's indicated by their mindset, what they think about. So each of us belongs to one of two large groups of people. 
non-Christians whose minds are set on the flesh or on the sinful nature, on earthly things, the things of the world, are those Christians whose minds are set on the things of God and who see all things in the world in relation to God. Now, there are different levels within each group. And if you're aware of some of the controversy on, over the carnal Christian, I'm, I'm not going there. I do not believe that that terminology is um, valid in the way it's popularly used today. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, is it of the uses the term carnal Christian. These were people in Corinth who we know these things about them. Number one, they, they used their spiritual gifts in the church. That was one of the reasons he had to write, but they served in the church. They came to the Lord's Supper. There were problems at the Lord's Supper. That's what he addressed. They came to the Lord's Supper. They loved preaching. They had their favorites, right? First chapter. That's not the carnal Christian spoken of today, is it? The carnal Christian today, commonly speaking, is the person who says they can take Jesus as Savior, not as Lord. They can take Jesus as Savior and be saved even though they live just like a worldling for all their life. And I think that's not a scriptural teaching. Carnal Christian, according to 1 Corinthians 3, Paul does use that term. He says you're carnal because there's one thing in their life where they were like an unbeliever. Is it not because of this? There's strife among you. And that was what he said made them say, you're, you're like the world. Not that their whole life was. One part of their life was. The rest of their life, they act like Christians. But nevertheless, this passage says everyone is in one of two groups. And obviously you have people, different levels in each group. So you've got some who are According to the flesh, it says here, the non-Christians, who may be very high-minded in one sense. They're great neighbors, great employees, great bosses, great citizens. They emphasize morality and character. They may be philanthropic and a lot of good things about them. But they're empty of the Holy Spirit. And you have people also in that same group who live their whole lives basically according to the more flagrant desires of the flesh and so forth. But nevertheless, they're all in this group. And over here... These are the people who, that's why I pointed out, they have the Holy Spirit. They're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Now some are living very close to the Lordship of Christ. And others at the time may be, to use the biblical term, backslidden. Now you know the difference between backslidden and apostate, don't you? Those two biblical terms. An apostate is someone who for a while looks like a Christian but proves to be not one at all. Like Judas. When Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't all say, yeah we, yeah, we were suspicious of Judas all along. Weren't you? Yeah, we all were. No. What did they say? Is it high? They were looking around. Who is it? Who's going to betray you? So Judas fooled even the other apostles. And Demas fooled the apostle Paul for a while. But both of them proved, though they looked like a real Christian for a while, proved that they were not because they turned away. And as John said, they went out from us. Why? They were not of us. If they had been one of us, they would not have left the people of God. A backslider, by contrast, comes back. Because see, to slide, to slide back, you have to have something to slide back from. There has to be something from which to slide back. And in this case, it is eternal life. The person is a Christian, but for a while may not live like one. But how do you determine if they are a backslider or an apostate? Here's how you know. The backslider comes back. The apostate doesn't. So can you be a Christian and die in a backslidden condition and you're actually saved, not an apostate? Theoretically, yes, but you don't want to find out. It may be you didn't come back before your death because you were, in fact, apostate and not Christian at all. But we're saying that for a time there are people in this group dwelled by the Spirit of God who may be backslidden 
But even those people, the point is, are still spiritually minded in the sense the Spirit of God is in their mind. And if he is, he is continually prompting them back, convicting them of their backslidden condition, convicting them of their sin, prompting them of their need to return, convicting them of the righteousness that they don't have in their practical daily life and of the importance of repentance. And they have to remain backslidden over a while while being resistant, as Paul put it, quenching the Holy Spirit. Remember, Paul wrote to people saying they quenched the Spirit. They were Christians. They were quenching the Spirit. In that sense, they were backslidden. He was telling them they needed to repent. My wife and I have a friend who was a backslider, backslider for two years. Backslidden for two years. Converted out of the world. Very difficult, difficult situation. Dramatically transformed. Went on a mission trip with us. Lived with us for a while. Very radical transformation. But she began to believe that because of her background, she wanted to be married so badly. She began to believe that because of her background, no godly young man could really love her. And so she turned back to the world. And she moved. And she changed jobs. And she was so secretive, we couldn't find her. She knew that we loved her enough that we would try to rescue her. And if uh, you don't love somebody if you'll let them ruin their life and you don't try to get them out. You don't really love someone if you know they're ruining their lives and you don't try to rescue them. And she knew that we did. And so she had to be very secretive. And it took us two years to find her. And at last uh, we found her. And uh, my wife and another couple known to some here um, met her at her job, at her car at midnight. One night she got off her shift. And she repented and restored. Had the privilege of marrying her to her husband. And they have several children living for the Lord today. But hearing me talk about these things one time, she said, that is so true. For that whole two years, I plunged myself back into this worldly lifestyle. She lived with a series of men. She went back to the bars and so forth. She said, it was as though I was trying to put my hands over my spiritual ears. I didn't want to hear anything about God and the things of God. I thought I knew what would make me happy. And I was never more miserable than in my life. And the farther I tried to run from God, the more the Holy Spirit would remind me of things you said in your sermons and things that people had said to me and scriptures kept coming to my mind. And at last, I couldn't take it anymore because I knew I was miserable. I knew this would not satisfy me. And the Spirit of God brought me back. The point is this, verse 5. Those according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Non-Christians and Christians think about different things. And when they think about the same things, they think differently about those things. So it's where many of those people where she was were thinking about the same thing she was, but they loved them. She was thinking about them, and she could not be satisfied by them. And she was thinking of how what God was thinking about what she was doing and what God had to say about the things she was plunging herself back into. Your mind is the mirror of your soul. Your mind is the mirror of your soul. It's like a periscope in reverse. You know what a periscope is. You look down here because of the mirrors, you know you can see what's going on up here. It's like a periscope in reverse. You look up here and you see the reflection of what's going on down here. Your mind is the mirror of your soul. The thoughts of your mind reflect the state of your soul. If you want to see the condition of your soul, are you saved or not? Is the Spirit of God within me? Look at your mindset. 
How is your mind set? Is your mind set to the frequency of the world and the things of the world? Or is it set on the frequency of heaven, so to speak, the things of God? What you think about reveals the state of your soul. The set the mind refers to what you think about. Especially in the kinds of things you tend to think about when your mind is in neutral. When you daydream, when you fantasize, when you don't have to think about anything else. What does your mind gravitate toward? What do you think about when you're driving or before you fall asleep or when you wake up in the night and can't go back to sleep or you're gazing out the window of a car or an airplane and you're waiting in line somewhere at the drive-thru? What does your mind default to most often? What do you enjoy thinking about most often? Your mindset is that which you feel most deeply about, you're most interested in, the things you enjoy talking about most, that you pursue talking about and thinking about more than anything else. Now many of us, you know, we, we enjoy sports. And you can talk at length about these things, but at the end of it all, a Christian says, you know, I, I, I love talking about my cardinal memorabilia and my Stan Musial collection that I have with a little bobblehead doll and the baseball cards and the record and all these sorts of things that I have. And some of us could talk about that for a long time. And others of you say, I could talk about hunting or fishing. I could talk about basketball all the, you know, for hours and hours. But there comes a point for the Christian where you say, you know, that's enough. <laughs> that's good, but it's not satisfying. And here as I've heard conversations in the men's room, in the hallway, as people come up to me afterwards and people talking about the things of God, the Christian gravitates that way and says, that is what really satisfies Nothing else can fully satisfy me like God and the things of God. And whereas some people could say, I could talk about sports, I could talk about work, I could talk about hunting or fishing or my hobby or this or that, I could talk about it all day, every day, and I could go all day without talking about the things of God and I'd be fine. The Christian says, I can talk about all those things too and at length and I enjoy them. But ultimately, there's nothing I enjoy talking about or thinking about more than God and the things of God. While I enjoy these, they do not satisfy me at the deepest level. Only the things of God are. That's the person whose mind is set on the things of the Spirit. The things of the flesh that speaks up here, these aren't just bodily things. We tend to think of, of bodily or sexual sins when we hear this term, but it's much broader than that. It means to be consumed by earthly things instead of, by contrast, the things of the Spirit of God. But even more broadly, it's to think about anything without thinking of its relationship to God. You can, so that's why I said you've got these people over here who can think about right things, providing for their family, being a good dad, being a good mom, teaching character to your kids, doing what's right. And you can think about all those things without relating it to God. And that's to be carnally minded, mindset on the flesh. But the Christian, by contrast, no matter what they think about, eventually it is a God-related thought. Everything in life of the Christian, sooner or later, they can't think about anything long enough without thinking about how it relates to God or what God is thinking about what they're thinking. <laughs> Their mind is set on the things of the Spirit. So to summarize 
have your mind set on the things of the flesh means that in whatever you think about, whatever you do, God is not in the center of it. The non-Christian is described in Psalm 10, verse 4, this way, to which I'll return at the end. The wicked, it says, are described this way. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. Notice this now. God is not in all his thoughts. That's the wicked. God is not in all his thoughts. He can think all day about work, about sports, about family, about other things, and God not be in any of them. But for the Christian, God is in every category of thought sooner or later. They don't think about work or family or anything for very long without either relating it to God or wondering about what God is thinking about their thinking. Christians just think differently. They think about, as the passage says here, the things of the Spirit. What does that mean to think about the things of the Spirit? Well, Jesus said the Spirit was sent to magnify Christ, right? So if, you, if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit, you think about Jesus a lot. You think about love for Christ. You think about the example of Christ in maybe what you're doing. You think about standing before Christ at the judgment someday. You think about the return of Jesus when you look at this guy. You think of Jesus a lot. When you're with other people, you think about, I wish I could find a way to tell them about Jesus. You think about Jesus a lot if your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. You think like this? Habitually? Spontaneously? Think about the things of the Spirit regardless of your age? Regardless of your church experience, do you think about them? What is your mind set? Are you spiritually minded? And my understanding of what it means to be spiritually minded was greatly aided by uh, the greatest of the English uh, Puritan theologians, John Owen. And he wrote uh, a book over 300 years ago on the grace and duty of spiritual mindedness. And so my next three points are taken from that, what it means to be spiritually minded. So first I said, are you spiritually minded? Because it's important. Only those who are spiritually minded are Christians. So what does it mean to be spiritually minded? First means this, you're spiritually minded when you think about God and the things of God spontaneously and apart from external causes. You often find yourself thinking about God and the things of God for no apparent reason, just spontaneously, and not because of external causes. See, everyone thinks about God and the things of God sometime. If you're halfway paying attention, you've thought about God and the things of God some in the last 10 or 15 minutes because a preacher has been putting them in your head. I am an external cause to you. And an unbeliever can think they are spiritually minded. Yeah, I think about God and things of God a lot. Been thinking about them all morning. Well, but somebody else put those in your head. And it may be because you go to a restaurant at lunch to see someone pray, and that makes you think about God for a moment. You hear something on the news about, uh, you know, some clash in, in the Middle East or something like that. It makes you think about God for a moment. You may see an accident somewhere, and you think, if that had been me, where would I be right now? Where are those people right now? And you think about God and the things of God. And something on TV or something on the radio or something, you know, frequently during the day, you think, well, I think about God and the things of God a lot. But it's always from the outside. It's always an external cause making you think about God and the things of God. Now, Christians often put themselves in situations where that does happen. You intentionally come in here because you want to think about God. But a Christian also finds himself or herself spontaneously thinking about God for no apparent reason. You're just driving down the road and you start thinking about God and the things of God. Spontaneously.
Now, a Christian will want to take time, as I said. You say, look, I, I want to focus on God, and, and all of life is to be worship, but I, I want to have worship proper, so to speak, focus on worship. So I'm going to come to a worship service, and I'm going to open my Bible every day and pray because I want to focus on God and God alone for a few minutes. And so a Christian intentionally says, I want external causes to help me think about God. But a Christian doesn't have to have that in order to think about God. All through the day, thoughts of God and the things of God come to your mind. Do you think this way? So, Don, you don't understand my situation. I'm so busy all day long. I rarely have time to stop and think about God. I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy from the time I leave the house in the morning, I, I, I'm the kind of guy, I, I'm on the phone while I'm eating my breakfast at the ATM. <laughs> or you may say, look, I, I'm, the kind of, I'm the kind of person from, you know, I, I wake up with a little face looking over the edge of the bed saying, Mommy, eat and my day starts like that and the only time I'm ever alone all day long is when I'm in the bathroom and even then they're beating on the door going mommy 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 and I collapse in the bed you know as putting the last one to bed then I collapse in the bed that is my day I don't have time to stop and think about God that's the point Christian doesn't have to stop to think about God you think about God spontaneously in the busiest of days, on the days you don't have time to stop and read the Bible, when you don't listen to Christian content in the car, you don't listen to Christian music, you don't have time to stop and think about God and the things of God, your busiest, most hectic days, the Christian finds himself or herself thinking about God and the things of God spontaneously. I mean, you're on the phone with somebody. You maybe have phoned it each year, and you're thinking, Lord, help me. What, what do I say right now? I've got to answer this guy right now. What do I say? Or maybe it's, Lord, forgive me for what I just said. Forgive me for being a poor witness here. Or maybe it's nothing more than, Lord, I think it's not always like this. <laughs> but you think about God and the things of God in your busiest days, your most hectic moment, as you don't consciously have to think to breathe on your busiest days. The Christian doesn't have to consciously stop to think about God and the things of God intentionally. It happens spontaneously. See, if you are a Christian, two people live in your body. You do, of course. And the Holy Spirit, who is a person. He's not a force. He's a person. And just as you can put thoughts in your mind, you can say, all right, what are we going to have for lunch today? Or you can say, when am I going to pay bills this week? Or when am I going to rake the leaves this week? Or whatever. And you can intentionally put thoughts in your head say, I need to think about this now. I need to study now, so I'm going to think about this subject now. The other person living in your body can put thoughts in your head too. And he does. Now, I don't mean, you know, words from God. I don't mean inspired words. I don't mean mystical things like that. I'm just saying the other person can cause you to think about certain things. He can bring Scripture verses to mind. He can cause you to think... I should share Jesus with this person. He can cause you to think what I just said is sin. I should stop and pray. The other person can put thoughts in your head too, and he does. The Holy Spirit is not passive within you. He's not just merely resident. He is active, and he can affect your thinking. And that's why, like a, like a spiritual artesian well, you find that thoughts of God and the things of God just effervesce up into your consciousness every once in a while because that other person there has you constantly thinking about God and the things of God. As Romans and Galatians tells us, as they tell us the 
Spirit of God causes us to say, Abba, Father. So he causes you to have these Godward thoughts, these spiritual thoughts. You're spiritually minded. The thoughts of things of God come into your consciousness because the other person helps put them there. At this very moment, this room is, is filled with all sorts of electronic signals. TV broadcasts coming down from the satellite filling this room. People are having mobile phone conversations that are zipping through your brain right now, going both ways. We're bombarded by microwave, microwaves of all various sorts from relay towers and all these sorts of things. And you've not been aware of a single one. You know why? Because you have no receiver set to that frequency. So they're going through your brain. You don't have a receiver in your brain set to that frequency. And that's the way it is for the unbeliever. There, there is no receiver in their brain for the frequency of the Spirit, of the things of God. But when the Spirit of God indwells a person, he takes that what is sort of like a broken radio in your head and he dials it to the frequency of heaven. I don't mean that we hear broadcasts from God and words from God, that sort of thing. But we have a new sensitivity that we couldn't hear before. And the Spirit of God communicates, so to speak, over that frequency. Your mind is set now on a different frequency by the Holy Spirit. And you start thinking about different things. And when you think about the things you used to think about, you think about them differently. Now you think about them in terms of the things of God or in comparison to the things of God or how they relate to the things of God or what does God think about what I think when I think about these things. That's why, regardless of what your day is like, things of God just often appear to you unexpectedly, spontaneously, if you're spiritually minded. So you're spiritually minded when you think about God and the things of God spontaneously, but also when you think about them abundantly. You are a Christian, you're spiritually minded when you think about God and the things of God abundantly, or, believe it or not, more than anything else. You're a Christian only if you think about the things of God more than anything else you think about. And I'll prove that. No greater evidence of conversion than, than a change in your whole direction of thinking. To think wrongly about God, to think little about God, and now to begin thinking about spiritual things, the things of God and how all things relate to God more than anything else is a solid proof of the work of God's grace. In Scripture, in Psalm 119, for example, the, the psalmist there testified to his daily abundance of these spontaneous spiritual thoughts. Like in verse 97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, the psalmist didn't mean he walked around all day long with a scroll, assuming this is King David, that in spite of being the civic, the military, the judicial leader of some two million people and all those responsibilities, that he forsook all that and he just walked around all day with a scroll in front of him. No, all day long while he's walking to a meeting with his cabinet, while he's sitting and adjudicating a case, as he's surveying the battlefield, the thoughts of God came to him. Things from the, from the Word of God came to his mind all the day. In another place he said in verse 164, Seven times a day I praise you. He didn't mean there that like a Muslim he was externally called to prayer seven times a day. No, all day long thoughts of God came to his mind. He praised God. 
these expressions of love and praise to God came to him. And so you are spiritually minded. You are a Christian when you think about the things of God more than you think about anything else. Before you came to Christ, you may have thought of school or work or sex or your children or, or getting things or your hobby or television or video games or sports or finances or any other number of things more than you thought about God and the things of God. But now... Once a person comes to Christ and the Spirit of God is within them, these, God is no longer a part of your life like all these other things are a part of your life. Colossians says that Christ then is our life, right? He is your life. And everything is in relation to Him, not any longer. He is one of many parts of your life. There's work, there's, there's, there's money, there's family, there's sports, and there's God, and He's a part of my life. Now the Bible says He is your life. How does this work. Imagine your thought life as being like a, a wall of post office boxes. You've gone to the post office and seen that, you know, and the entire wall is just these little boxes, okay? That, that's, that's our mind. So each box is a different category of thought. So you open this one, here's your work thoughts are in there. And, you know, you put thoughts in there, well, I need to think about work. Next one, maybe your sports-related thoughts. You think about those sometimes. Then your parental thoughts and think about being a parent. And then here are your financial thoughts and, you know, th those matters. And, and your home maintenance thoughts and, you know, your thoughts about being a neighbor and, and, and different categories of life. Each category there. And then you've got a box down here for God, okay? You come to church and you open the God box and you put thoughts of God in there. And occasionally during the week things happen. You put thoughts of God in there. But now, when a person comes to Christ, no longer is God one of the boxes there. He's in every one of them. And there's a new postmaster. And it's not you putting letters in there. There's a new postmaster on the other side, the Holy Spirit. And he puts thoughts of God in every one of those boxes. So that you don't think about work very long without it being a God-related thought. You think, Lord, help me to be a good witness here at work. How would Jesus respond to this? Lord, I pray for my fellow worker. You don't think about work very long. You're not at work very long without thinking occasionally about God and the things of God. You don't think about sports very long without thinking maybe sometimes, Lord, am I making too much of this? Or Lord, uh, you see some analogy between something in sports and the Christian life. Or you get convicted about something, maybe too much time related to sports. And then maybe when it comes to, to money, you, you, you realize sometimes, you know, th this is God's money. <laughs> and how much of God's money should I give and how much of God's money should I spend? And would God have me make this purchase? Your parental thoughts. You've got another postmaster on the other side now who's putting thoughts in there. You put thoughts in there too, and he puts thoughts in there. He puts letters in there, so to speak. And so you think, Lord, forgive me for disciplining this child in anger. Oh, God, help me to be a better example of this child. Lord, save this child. So you see what I'm saying? That's how a Christian thinks about God and thinks of God more than anything else. Because a Christian doesn't have any category of thought that is not a God-related category. This is not saying... that every thought is a God-related thought, every individual thought, but every category of thought. 
Okay? There's a difference between the post office box and the letters in the box. Not saying that every letter in the box, every single thought is a God-related thought, but every box is a God-related thought. So I'm not saying if you hit your thumb with a hammer, your first thought is of God. But I'm saying you think about that long enough and you think, Lord, forgive me for what I just said. <laughs> or you think, Lord, heal my thumb. Or I'm looking forward to the day when I have that new body <laughs> without pain. You see what I'm saying? You don't think about any category very long without it being a God-related thought. So whereas external causes occasionally make you think about God if you're an unbeliever, for a Christian, external causes are always making them think about God. Even though they're not explicitly God-related things for the unbeliever. See, a preacher makes them think about God. Something on the news about the Muslim world may make them think about God. They may see a car accident and it makes them think, where would I be right now if I was in that car? And that makes them think about God. It's an external thing. But for the Christian, external things are always causing them to think about God. You may be crunching through the leaves on a glorious fall day like this, and it makes you think of the creativity of the glory of God. When your breath is taken away by some beautiful sunset, you try to imagine heaven. You can hardly look at the, at the billowy, cottony clouds in the sky without thinking someday Jesus is going to cut right through a sky like that and return. Almost everything you look at sooner or later becomes a God-related thought. When you're spiritually minded, everything sooner or later is a God-related category of thought. You don't have any box up here that sooner or later, you open that box, sooner or later you don't think about God in that box. And most conclusive of all, if you're spiritually minded, even when you sin, you think about God. Now think about that. Sometimes Christians will immerse themselves in thought about sinful things for long periods. The Bible says that even the best Christians, while we are in this world, even the best of us will still think about sinful matters and do de sinful deeds and do it a lot. But the Spirit often warns us before we sin, that what we're thinking or tempted to do is against the will of God. And frequently, even in the midst of the sinful act, our conscience burns with conviction. And often our very first thought, we turned our back for the moment, we're walking away from God and we're choosing to sin because when we sin, we sin because we want to at that moment. At that moment, we want sin more than we want God. He says, don't say that, I'm going to say it anyway. Don't think that, we want to think that anyway. Don't do that, I want to do that anyway. But often our very first thought after having walked away from God, we turn and, and with the guilt of sin all over us, our first thought is, oh God, please forgive me. Now how unnatural is that? When you're walking away from God, you're thinking of God. And your first thought often after sin is of God. That is unnatural. And that's the point. It's supernatural. That other person living within you. The Spirit of God causes you to think about God and the things of God more than anything else so that even in sin, you're thinking about God. No matter, you take a compass, shake that compass, that needle then is going wildly. But no matter how you shake a compass, sooner or later, you let it settle down, it comes back and points north. Your mind may be like that at a given time, on a given day, like Elvis. I mean, you know, all shook up. You're just, 
your whole day, your whole mind. You, you're running from one thing to the next. You, you don't have time to think about God and the things of God. But you let that Christian's mind settle down for any length of time. And it comes back to the true spiritual north. Oh, God, forgive me. Oh, God, help me. The Christian can't not think about God for very long. Thoughts of God are simply irrepressible to the Christian. So, are you spiritually minded? Do you think about God and the things of God spontaneously, abundantly, and third, delightfully? The spiritually minded person thinks about God and the things of God with more delight, with more enjoyment than you think about anything else. Scientists say that thousands of thoughts flash upon our minds every day, but which are the ones you love to linger on the most? A Christian finds enjoyment in God and the things of God more than anything else most of the time. This doesn't mean that we can't be thrilled to the depths of our souls with love for your children or grandchildren. You just want to squeeze them to pieces sometimes. This doesn't mean you can't come catapulting off the couch when your guy makes a slam dunk and you come, yes! That doesn't mean you can't be excited over things. You jump up and down, but it does mean there is a joy and delight in the things of God which transcends all, those, all of those other things. By the way, incidentally, sometimes we talk about the enthusiasm we have at a sporting event as opposed to the things of God. And those sporting events, they tend to be punctilier, you know, in a moment. Air dribbling down the court and you're watching the game, suddenly there's this pass and this slam dunk, you jump up, yes! Or they score the touchdown, yes! That's just in a moment of time, there's this compressed enthusiasm in that moment and then it's gone. In the worship of God, it tends to be more sustained. It's not a Roman candle kind of experience as sports often is, but it's more of a, a sustained burn. A prolonged enjoyment of God and the things of God, and rarely those punctiliar kinds of moments. But for the believer, there is a joy and delight in God and in the things of God which transcends any other thing. And you love to talk about God and the things of God more than anything else. Now, there are times you just want to talk about your children or your grandchildren, you want to talk about your hobby, you want to talk about sports, and that's all right in a given time. But day in, day out, week in, week out, the Christian says, there's nothing that I enjoy talking about, hearing about, thinking about, more than God and the things of God. Fifth and last, you're not spiritually minded if God is not in all your thoughts. Psalm 10 was written by David. It's called A Prayer to Overthrow the Wicked. We don't use the term wicked very much anymore. It, it sounds sort of arrogant or condescending at best and uh, outdated maybe. But the Bible uses it as a description of those who are outside of Christ. And according to this verse, Psalm 10:4, the distinctive characteristic of the wicked, the one who's not a Christian, is this. God is not in all his thoughts. Again, that doesn't mean that God is in every single thought. That if you hit your thumb with a hammer, your first thought is of God. That's not what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying is that every category of thought, God's not there. A Christian can go all day at work and not think about God. And he's fine with that. A Christian can go all day studies for school, not think about God. Anything about NFL, all Sunday afternoon and night. Never have a thought of God because God is not in their football thoughts. 
God is not in their work thoughts. God is not in their school thoughts. God is not in all their thoughts. Those who aren't spiritually minded think of many things, but they rarely think of God spontaneously. If you had a little screen on their forehead that projected what they were thinking about, very, very rarely would you see the things of God on that screen. And most of the time when they were there, they would have been put there, transmitted from the outside, not from within. Well, the obvious question now as I close is, are you spiritually minded? Is God a magnet for your mind? Do you find thoughts of God simply irrepressible? You cannot not think about God. Do you find thoughts of God sometimes just irrepressible? Do you find yourself sometimes delightfully absorbed in thoughts of God? Within you something says, I, I was made for this. I was made for God. The enjoyment of God. And oh, to think of seeing one who, just to see him, just to see him can satisfy forever. Oh, to imagine such a moment. You think this way? Someone may say, you know, I do think that way. It's not that I try. It's not that I consciously, but I, I do. I find myself thinking about God and the things of God spontaneously, abundantly, delightfully. And take heart. That's the way a Christian thinks. Regardless what else is going on in your life right now, regardless of the disappointments and failures in your Christian life, if you think that way, take heart. That's the way a Christian thinks. And lastly, I would say this, that God will change the thinking of all who come to Jesus Christ. If God is not in all your thoughts, He can be, though you can't make that happen. You can't resolve, I'm going to start thinking about God a lot more now. I'm going to think about God and the things of God a lot more now. You can't. That receiver in your mind is broken. You can't fix it. And furthermore, you have no appetite for it. You cannot force yourself to, to love what you do not naturally love. You cannot force yourself to think about God and the things of God because you don't have an appetite for that. You much prefer to think about other things than God and the things of God. You can't resolve to make it better and fix it. But if you will submit your mind to Him, if you'll repent from that way of thinking and living and ask Him through what Jesus has done to change your mind and your heart and your desires, you will find this wonderful promise in Hebrews 8.10 where He says, Those who come to Me, I will put My laws into their Minds. The Bible talks about the law written on tablets of stone and the law of God written in the heart. On tablets of stone, it's external. That's where your parents say. That's where preachers say, you shall and you shall not. And it's external. And you try to reform and you try to conform to that. But you know you fail. But when you come to Christ, the Spirit of God within writes these things on your heart. And you want to obey them. And you want to because you love them. And you love Him. 
1987, the Minnesota Twins superstar center fielder Kirby Puckett lived my fantasy. He led his team to the championship of the World Series. He was the most valuable player. And a few weeks after the World Series, I heard an interview with a shortstop on that team. And he was asked, what, what is it like to be in that clubhouse? You've seen where they, you know, they run together on the field, as we saw last night. And they're celebrating. They throw their gloves and hats into the air, and they're out there for a while. But then they come down in the dugout and down the tunnel into the clubhouse. And, you know, they've got everything covered with plastic, and they're all you know, pouring champagne over each other and spraying each other with champagne and burning their eyes and this sort of thing. And they're hugging and, and they present the trophy uh, to the owner of the team and they interview the manager and all these people and they're hooping and hollering. And he described all of that, but he said, you know, the most memorable thing to me in that moment was 10 minutes after the last out, 10 minutes after we're the world champions, I, I looked across the clubhouse and there was our hero, Kirby Puckett, sitting down in his locker with his head down. This is weird. He said, so I picked my way over all the TV cables and around everybody and went over and said, Kirby, what's going on, man? He looked up with the saddest face and he said, if this is all there is to it, life is pretty empty. 600 seconds after he got everything he had lived his life for. Since he was a five-year-old boy, he had dreamed of winning the World Series, of being the most valuable player. And he got it. And when he got it, he said, if this is all there is to it, life is pretty empty. The great 4th century theologian Augustine said, everybody wants to be happy. But nobody's happy. And there are two reasons they're not happy. One is they don't get what they want. They don't win the World Series. They don't even make it to the major leagues. They don't get the job they want. They don't get the house they want. They don't get the spouse they want. They don't get the kids they want. They don't get the income they want. They don't get what they want, and so they're not happy. But the other reason people aren't happy is they get what they want, and it doesn't satisfy. They win the World Series. They are the most valuable player. They get the house they want. They get the spouse they wanted. They get the children they want. They get the income they want. And it doesn't satisfy. Because God didn't make us to be satisfied with any of those things. He made us with this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts so there is no person, no possession, no experience can fill that God-shaped vacuum. And God permitted one man in the world to have it all have all of everything he wanted and he tried as much as he wanted of everything he saw to fill that God-shaped vacuum in his heart and he said, it's all vanity. It doesn't work. Because God wants us to be satisfied with the greatest of gifts, himself. There's none like him. There's no one to compare with him. And I don't know what your most absorbing fantasy may have been but whatever it is, ultimately, if it's not him, it's vanity. The greatest of all fantasies, if we may use the term fantasy, the greatest of all joys, the greatest of all delights, the greatest of all hopes is in the greatest of all beings. 
and God himself. Those creatures described there, the word describing them means the burning ones, burning with purity, burning with holiness in his presence, day and night without ceasing. Holy, holy, holy. Ever since we've been in this room, that's all they said. Ever since you've been born, that's all they said. Ever since before time began, that's all they have said. Not because it's their job description. They can't help it. Because they enjoy an infinite being of infinite beauty. And wherever they look, it takes their breath away. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy. Day and night without ceasing forever. There's nothing like that. Nothing you can imagine is that great, is that glorious. And he offers himself to you through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Grant us a glimpse of your greatness and glory. Thank you for what you've done through Jesus to make yourself accessible to us. The one to whom we could never reach, never gain, never earn. You have come through your Son to open wide a door to yourself for all who will come. Cause people today to want to run in their hearts to Jesus as the door, as the way, the truth, the life. Thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who sets our minds on heavenly things, who gives us an appetite, a longing, an aching to see your face, to enjoy the things of God. Thank you for the enjoyment that we get to have in this life. It's just a down payment, just a taste of what is to come. Thrill us and satisfy us with that today. We ask in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.